Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers & Company from the Archives. Today, American author and translator Lydia Davis. From her mysterious found stories to new versions of Proust and Flaubert, Lydia Davis is surprising and memorable. Her latest collection is called Our Strangers. It's not easy to describe exactly what Lydia Davis's writing is like. Some of her shorter pieces read like poems. And in fact, she's had work in both the best American short stories and the best American poetry. When she won a MacArthur Foundation Genius Award, her work was described as literary miniatures, and she was praised for her crafting of witty, experimental prose that celebrates the complexity of life's most ordinary moments. Jonathan Franzen called her a magician of self-consciousness. Or, as one critic put it, for a writer who is, on the surface, so strenuously cerebral, she produces writing that is often exceedingly intimate. And it's this discrepancy that proves rewarding in her work. This discrepancy is exactly what you'll hear in our conversation. Lydia Davis was born in 1947 in Northampton, Massachusetts, where her father was teaching English at Smith College. He later taught at Columbia, and she attended Barnard College. In the 1970s, she lived for a time in France, where she collaborated on translations with her first husband, the writer Paul Auster. Davis has written many books of stories, and a novel called The End of the Story— In the past few years, she's also published two big collections of essays, Essays 1 and Essays 2, on Proust, translation, foreign languages, and the city of Arles. Her newest title, Our Strangers, contains 144 short stories in 300 pages. I talked to Lydia Davis on stage at the Blue Metropolis International Literary Festival in Montreal in 2007. You grew up in a literary household. Both your parents were writers. Your father taught English literature at Columbia University. What was it like growing up in that environment? I made you very self-conscious. My parents, yeah, they were both... Both of them started as fiction writers. My mother went on and continued to be a fiction writer, short stories. My father gave it up eventually and became a professor of English and a critic. But we, we couldn't really um, say anything after a while. I mean, after a certain age, I imagine. At three, I didn't mind. But at a certain age, we couldn't speak without being aware of how we were saying something, how it was being phrased, as well as what we were saying. So if we made a sort of clumsy repetition, you know, one of them might very well point that out, you know. Sort of lightly, with a smile, but... It was, it was, it was um, a very language-saturated household. And my father loved etymologies, which I, I inherited from him, to the love of etymologies. So he would often go to the dictionary and say, you know, saying, I wonder where that word came from, and find some fascinating origin, which was truly entertaining to a child after a certain point. I don't know. But the idea of having your language corrected, did that have a, a repressive effect on your talking? Yeah. It, it did. And that continued right up to the end, you know, that I would, I would be very aware, a little less so with my mother, who was a little more garrulous, and so she was sort of waiting for a chance to start talking as soon as I was done. But my father, <laughs> my father would consider very carefully what I had said, and um, and that made me feel very insecure about what I said. And um, I don't know if this is a, a good example, but I remembered it just the other day when he was even in the nursing home. I was trying to 
say the sort, you know how you want to say the things that you don't want to have forgotten to say. So our family was not, as you can imagine, given to sort of spontaneity. But I said to him, you know, you've, you've been a very good father. I just wanted him to know that. And he said, in what respects? <laughs> Were you also, did you concern yourself with being potential material? Because both your parents published stories in The New Yorker, for example. No, and that, that's nice. My father had stopped writing by then. And my mother, although she took a great deal from our domestic life, she didn't take it very closely. I mean, she would take bits and pieces, um, interactions with a maid or with a teenager, but she didn't take me exactly. So there was never that discomfort. I did it a bit with, with my sons, but very sparingly also. I didn't want to... Although the one story that my son, my younger son, is most clearly represented in, he, he loves the story, and he loves me to read it in public. And, and <laughs> so it's a kind of attention, in, in a way. I read somewhere that you started reading Beckett when you were about 13. What did you like about his work? The house was full of books, so I was always taking a book off the shelf and, and looking at it. And um, it's not that my father or my parents were great Beckett fans, because they really weren't. I think they had problems with Beckett. They, they came from an earlier sort of kind of writing, a uh, more traditional kind of writing. They found Beckett a little lacking and difficult. But when I, I, I guess I had been immersed in... Oh, things like, I mean, all the good children's books, the, the, the really good, wonderful ones. And then, say, Jane Eyre, of course, was a, a book that would appeal to a teenage girl. And um, Dos Passos. I'm, I'm thinking of the, the books that kind of had impacts at various points. And so then I pick up, it was um, Malone Dies, I think. And um, it was just that there was so little material, and it was such a narrow focus, and such plain language, and such utter, um, not, no attempt at lyricism or flowery, flowery language, that he would spend a page or two talking about how he dropped his pencil, and, and what kind of pencil it was. You know, this just seemed utterly strange to me, and wonderful, just, just so simple and clear. I, did, I didn't read the whole book. I have to say that that's a habit that continued. I rarely read the, the whole of a book, especially a book that that really interests me stylistically. Really? Um, yeah. It's. I mean, sometimes I go back and finish it, and sometimes I read it all the way through. But it's somehow enough to read the first ten or twenty pages and be amazed by what's going on. But I think in those cases, I'm reading it sort of for my own craft. And so I don't really need to... I'm really a lot less interested in what happens in that kind of book and how it ends, even though I know that's a whole another part of it. I'm just interested in how the writer is approaching the material and what, what he or she is doing with it. Would you read whole novels oh, otherwise? Oh, sure, sure. Because, I, I, I mean, they're all different kinds of reading, so there's reading in order to completely forget where I am and what I'm doing. So those I read all the way through without, you know, even wanting to stop. You said that Beckett showed you that a writer could write about the self watching the self write. Is that a good thing? It's not a good thing all the time. <laughs> Self-consciousness is very, it's very tricky um, because it has so many layers and levels and because you can, be, you can watch yourself being conscious of yourself, you know, and it, it gets to be very paralyzing. So I wouldn't want Beckett's kind of approach to be the only kind of approach. I was thinking, when you talk about paralyzing, I was thinking of Kafka, because you, you write a, a story in, in Kafka's voice in, in your new book, Varieties of Disturbances, and some of it is very funny. For instance, um, 
Then I decided to stay, although simply lying around on the balcony may not really deserve to be called a decision. And uh, elsewhere he says, we ate something which unfortunately would not disappear from our plates unless we swallowed it. <laughs> How do you relate to Kafka? Well, I have to confess right away that those are Kafka's words. I, 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 <laughs> I, I wondered. What happened was, I think one day I was facing the usual problem of what to make for dinner. And, um, I thought you were going to say the usual problem of what to write. <laughs> no, the problem of what to write is actually less pressing usually than the problem of what to make for dinner. Either ordinary family dinner or special dinner for friends. And then I suddenly thought, well, Kafka would have had a really hard time with this, you know, what to make for dinner. And he would have hemmed and hawed and had doubts about himself and about dinner and about food and about the people he was having to dinner or the person and, and about living it all or eating it all. And so I thought, well, that I'd like to do one page that presents Kafka trying to figure out how to approach the dilemma of making dinner. And that would have been fine, and I would have kept it to one page, but then I started reading his letters to Milena just to sort of remind myself exactly how he might speak, you know, to himself, say, rather than in writing something. And the trouble was I found so much beautiful strange language and so many odd metaphors and funny metaphors that I, I think I wrote them all down and then couldn't give up any of them and just wrote it to incorporate all of, all that I could. So it's really word by word, in word count, it's mostly Kafka. And I just provided sort of a, a structure and a, a bit of a, a framework yeah. yeah plot and and bridge passages and but you know even the very last sentence is Kafka's people remind me I'm trying to remember what it was something like people say I swim like a swan but they do not mean that I'm graceful something like that <laughs> Although apparently he was very, he was surprisingly athletic in a, in a funny sort of way. I mean, he used to like to swim. Well, Proust was in the army for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> and enjoyed it, actually. When you were a child, your family spent a year in Austria where you learned German. How do you think that affected your, your sensitivity to language? I, I think, I mean, these theories are, you know, people muse endlessly on their own psychological makeup and history and background. But the theories could be all wrong. But my theory is that um, it did have a profound effect because I was seven years old and I had never encountered another language before. Actually, the very first language I was surrounded by, foreign language, was, was French because we stopped in Paris on the way to Austria. So it was actually in the Tuileries gardens that I first heard another language around me and asked my mother, you know, what's going on? You know, why are they speaking in this language? Or why are they speaking this way? And still having fun. But then I, they put me in the first grade of the Ursulinenklosterschule, all one word, a convent school. And German was what was spoken in the classroom. And as I remember, the teacher herself did, she had some English, but it was broken English. It was not fluent English. Some of the children could speak a little English. But I more or less had to learn German. And after a month, I was reading in German. And the rest of that year, I, I existed pretty happily in German with my school friends. And of course, well, it was a year of the, the war. Even though it was 1954, the, the, the war felt still very close. And there were still wounded people in the street and a, a sort of depression hanging over the city. And my mother was also very ill and had to go into the hospital there for I don't know whether it was days or weeks, but so the whole year was full of, you know, it was, it was a difficult year emotionally, and that was all in the German language. 
so I don't know how to relate that to somehow. I, I, I do relate it to becoming a translator because I think that experience of being in the classroom, being surrounded by language I didn't know, and, and yet knowing it meant something, and then having it become transparent and something I understood, I think I, I'm just repeating that over and over. It's not that I don't know French anymore. I know it by now, but it's still a strange language to me. It's not home, and so I keep bringing it into English. Yet you didn't become a translator from the German. I mean that. I, well, that's another. If you want, you know, stage two of the psychological story of how a translator comes into being. I I went from a comfortable small town, Northampton, Massachusetts to the big city of New York when I was 10 and was put into a big school, the Brearley School, and felt very lost there. But had to go to tutorial sessions with a French teacher, Mademoiselle Rosaire, to catch up with the other children who had been studying French since kindergarten. So I think maybe, again, this is a construct, that those little, little sessions, comfortable little sessions with my French teacher and I, I, I sort of, again, made a little home place or a little comfortable place in the strange city and the strange school. And I, I loved the, the book that we learned out of. And a few years ago, finally managed to find another copy of that. A little like Rosebud, you know, <laughs> my original French grammar. Because you were, you were also passionate about music as a young person, but you didn't continue with that. Why not? I can't tell whether that's because it wasn't in the family tradition. I mean, it was... It wasn't the family business. It wasn't the family business. We were all shoemakers. <laughs> shoemaker I was going to be. Um, well, my sister played the clarinet very well, so it was in the house. But um, my mother and father did not play. My father could play the piano, but he simply didn't. So... I think either that or I realized at some point that I wasn't as good at that as I was at writing. I've continued the music ever since in one form or another. And it's been sometimes more exciting and compelling. It's often hard to stop playing music in order to go write because writing is more difficult for me. Because uh, you say that you knew even after you decided to become a writer. Were your parents encouraging, by the way, that you be a writer? Oh yeah, they didn't. They didn't discourage it. They they kind of left me alone, as, as far as I can remember, which is good. They didn't put pressure on to be a writer, but so many of their friends were writers. So much of what they talked about was writing, and I was good at it. And they helped me, you know, if I if I read a poem to them that I was going to take into school, they would talk to me about rhymes and rhyme schemes and how it could be a little better, you know, but in a nice way. I showed my mother a short story that I'd written that had a not very nice mother in it. In fact, a very not very nice mother. And she was a little hurt by it because it was so close to home. And yet she was giving me all the suggestions she could develop this part more and a little less of that. And you know, I found, I think I found the note or something that she wrote on it. So she, so there was a lot of encouragement, but no pressure. But you, you said somewhere that you realized that being a writer wasn't a happy fate. It wasn't a happy fate when I first started out, and it became happy. Say, um, when I was first working hard at it and copying sentences out of favorite writers and trying to work on my own stories, sort of some of them endlessly, you know, one took two years of work before it seemed it all finished. That was difficult. You know, there, there were always moments of elation in the middle of, of it and happiness, but the whole thing wasn't happy. And it wasn't till a few years later when I f just found happier forms that I began to really take pleasure in it. You're talking about growing up in a language-saturated environment. Uh, grammar is some, precision in grammar is something that saturates your writing. Uh, for instance, uh, you have a story honoring the subjunctive, which goes, it invariably precedes, even if it do not altogether supersede, the determination of what is absolutely desirable and just. That's the whole story. 
Is that your definition of, of the subjective? Not at all, really. <laughs> I think I came across that sentence in something I was reading, and it's the subjunctive do in the middle of that, even if it do not altogether. I just loved it because it, it was obviously correct in this the writer, and yet so wrong to my ear. So honoring the subjunctive just means sort of, here, I'm going to show you the subjunctive and give it a place of honor. That's all that means. Because a good subjunctive is hard to find nowadays. It I mean, is. <laughs> it is. I mean, if I were is usually about it, and even that is starting to even, disappear. Even that doesn't exist some, a lot of the time in England, and, and not even now, but in the past. I'm very puzzled by the was and the were in England versus America, and I'm going to have to look into this. Your story, Grammar Questions, looks at the difficulties in expressing a particular state in language. And in this case, it's the state of the dying of the narrator's father. This could be an emotional situation for the narrator, but he or she tells the story from the perspective of, of grammar, and the, the emotion is subdued. It's not called, for instance, the death of my father, but Grammar Questions. What's going on there? One thing that, that continues to interest me in different forms is having a lot of emotional content in a story, but not approaching it directly, letting it be in the story and concentrating or focusing on something else. And so that's what's happening in that story. You know, let, let the emotional content not be acknowledged at all, really. Let's just talk about the grammar. and. While talking about the grammar, we can intimate some of what's happening. And I think most of my stories do originate in, in a moment when whatever it is that I'm writing about actually does occur to me. I mean, that did occur to me. Those questions did occur to me. If someone is dying, can you really say, um, that's where he lives? You know, that, that doesn't make sense. And as soon as you begin really looking at language, certain kinds of language, it, it often doesn't hold up. There's something a little bit wrong. I mean, it, it holds up in the sense that we, it's useful to us. We use it and it communicates well. But if you look at it closely, it's wrong somehow. Is that a way of, of controlling the emotion? Because um, a lot of your narrators experience things at kind of arm's length. Oh, controlling the emotion. Um, no, the emotion, no, I, I don't know. It, it's controlled within that story, but, and it can imply that, the, that this narrator cannot deal with this, which is fine with me, because it isn't exactly me, even though it's sort of the way I was trying to describe Proust's work, that it takes from reality but selects it and moves it around and then presents it as if it is reality, it, as if it is autobiography, but it's not. Lydia Davis, there's a short story from Variety of Disturbances called Absent-Minded, and I wonder if you could read that. Sure. Absent-Minded. The cat is crying at the window. It wants to come in. You think about how living with a cat and the demands of a cat make you think about simple things like a cat's need to come indoors and how good that is. You think about this and you are too busy thinking about this to let the cat in. So you forget to let the cat in and it is still at the window crying. You see that you haven't let the cat in and you think about how odd it is that while you were thinking about the cat's needs and how good it is to live, with the simple needs of a cat. You were not letting the cat in, but letting it go on crying at the window. And then while you're thinking about this and how odd it is, you let the cat in without knowing you're letting the cat in. Now the cat jumps up on the counter and cries for food. You see that the cat is crying for food, but you don't think of feeding it because you are thinking how odd it is that you have let the cat in without knowing it. Then you see that it's crying for food while you're not feeding it. And as you see this and think it's odd that you have not heard it cry, you feed the cat without knowing that you're feeding it. And that, that stops sort of abruptly because it could go on all day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Lydia Davis with her short story, Absent-Minded. Your, your narrators often get lost in thought, distracted by their own thoughts. Is, what, what are you saying about thinking here? In that story? Oh, it could be many different things. She's sort of priding herself on, on her ideas about simplicity and, and animals and taking care of animals' needs. And she's so busy priding herself that she doesn't take care of the animal. And that, that can happen over and over again, that you're, you're so busy congratulating yourself on one thing that you neglect something else. Or that thinking is just as real as the animal that lives with you and needs your attention. Your thoughts also need your attention. I'm not sure. I don't have intentions before I write something, and I often don't stop to sort of think afterwards what they mean. Are your own moment-to-moment thoughts as detailed, as analytical, as, as most of your narrators? Oh, well, probably. I mean, some of them are pretty crude, too. I mean, just, you know, not very nuanced also. Do you ever want to turn the running commentary theory um, off? No, no, no. It's never, it's, never, um, it's never oppressive. I actually enjoy my thoughts and enjoy thinking. And um, as I say, my thoughts are not always so detailed and, and nuanced. So um, they give me a lot of relief from, from effort. There's a story in your new collection of varieties of disturbance called Enlightened, and I wonder if you could read that. Sure. Enlightened. I don't know if I can remain friends with her. I've thought and thought about it. She'll never know how much. I gave it one last try. I called her after a year. But I didn't like the conversation, the way the conversation went. The problem is that she is not very enlightened. Or I should say, she is not enlightened enough for me. She is nearly 50 years old and no more enlightened, as far as I can see, than when I first knew her 20 years ago, when we talked mainly about men. I did not mind how unenlightened she was then, maybe because I was not so enlightened myself. I believe I am more enlightened now, and certainly more enlightened than she is, although I know it's not very enlightened to say that. But I want to say it, so I'm willing to postpone being more enlightened myself so that I can still say a thing like that about a friend. <laughs> Lydia Davis with her story, Enlightened. And that, I mean, that's really quite funny, although it's told very deadpan. Did you, did you intend it to be humorous? Well, by now, I, I, know, that, um, I know that it's funny. It's funny to me, too. What do you mean by now? (laughs) Well, when I first started writing things like that, um, I don't know exactly if it was exactly like that, but people laughed, and I didn't know they were funny. And it it still happens to me. There's another piece in the book called Head Heart, in which there's a line, something like, um, well, it's, it's about a woman struggling with grief and then she realizes that sooner or later the earth too will vanish and that makes her feel better and a friend of mine thought that was very funny now you see I really didn't think that was funny I take great comfort in the fact that the earth itself will will vanish someday too which sort of puts all our little troubles in perspective but to her that was a funny thing to get to be comforted by I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. Lydia Davis, in your new collection, Varieties of Disturbances, there's a somewhat odd piece called We Miss You, and it's about 27 grade four children who write get well notes to a classmate. And you write it in the style of a sociological study. Why did you want to tell the story like this? I I think I found this folder of letters among my family's papers. It's based on 
on reality. My brother was in the hospital when he was in, in fourth grade, and the teacher assigned all the children to write letter, get well letters. And I was very touched by the letters. And so I wanted to write something about them or do something with them. But I think I was more interested in letting them come through or, or letting them speak, letting the children's letters speak than I was in telling some more traditional story about the boy who goes to the hospital and so on. That, that wasn't really the point. Again, maybe it's one of these oblique, you know, we're not worried about the boy who nearly died. We're um, worried about exactly how these letters were written and how many of the children could write a complex sentence and how many uh, could use the conjunction but instead of and, which was far more interesting and um, how many had real content in the letters and talk about the handwriting and so on. This is quite a long story, by the way. This is not one paragraph. This is something like 20 pages or something. And the narrator takes it very seriously and does a real study of all the letters in every way. And I really did that, of course, so it was a terribly laborious study to, uh, story to write. But again, I, I, I think then the children come through one by one or little by little, you know, and the narrator remains this sort of cold fish. There are a couple of other stories in this collection also presented in this sort of study style. Of uh, One is of two elderly women and possibly a third who are uh, live with great vitality and you document or your character sort of narrates all their, their habits and activities, another is about a woman and her maids. What does that approach give you? Well, the long one about the two old women, um, they were two old women that I knew. And uh, I just uh, wanted to say every single thing about them. <laughs> every Describe everything about their lives because I admired them so much. And um, the women were sort of identical in a funny way. One was African-American, one was sort of Swedish-American. And yet there were the things they did, that they did the same things and had the same health, vitality, and humor. I, I'm slightly health conscious, always thinking we're just ideal conscious. What's the ideal life? You know, what's the ideal life? And um, they seem to embody that ideal life. So I just, I thought, well, I don't know if anyone else will be interested in this story. You know, some stories I know other people will enjoy. This one I thought, well, I don't care if they do or don't. I really want, want all of that there and I want it there. In that kind of documentary style? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's no, I had no interest in making a drama of it. I could have, probably. But um, that doesn't interest me anymore. At all, in fiction, particularly? Well, it interests me very much to read it. But not to write it? Not to write it, no. Lydia Davis, most of your fiction has been in, in the form of short stories, but I want to talk for a moment about your novel, The End of the Story. The narrator is a woman looking at a relationship that she had with a younger man. There's an obsessive quality to her thoughts and, and her writing. What does she think she might be able to figure out with all this intensive analysis? I guess since she can't have the man and she can't have the relationship and she can't go back to that, at least she will have an understanding of the whole thing. And um, maybe by pinning down every bit of it, remembering every bit of it, um, she'll have something. She'll have her memories and her understanding of it. And I think her obsessive attempt to do that is meant to show how, what a loss she feels. It's a very narrow book. Some people love that narrowness, so it's all in the narrator's head, and some people just can't stand it, because there are very few scenes and very little dialogue and very little... Uh, it was very, it's very gripping. I mean, she's just... The, I mean, if you can stand it. If yeah. you can stand it. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the narrator ad admits that she's manipulating the chronology, the activities, her memories, in, in order to 
make the story more believable or more palatable. It is, after all, fiction. What are you saying about storytelling here? Yeah, that's right. I, I was I was thinking of her talking to herself. I was forgetting about the aspect of it, that she is writing a novel about it in order to do that. Oh, I don't know. I suppose that that that, that is one of the impulses of writing fiction to 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 have some kind of control over reality, disturbing or happy. Um, I don't know. To communicate is is so basic. I think about it all the time. A writer feels relief, you know, even if it's something written in a notebook that will never see the light of day. But somehow I, I feel the more it's shaped, the more shaped it is, um, the more I've taken it, whatever it was, out of myself, and, and the more relieved I feel. Lydia Davis, in, in several of your stories, there are ambivalent and, and even fraught relationships between mothers and their children. And there's one from an earlier co collection, Break It Down, called The Mother. Could, could you read that one? It's one that my mother did not like very much. Is that the one that you asked her to help you with? No, the, no? the one she helped me work on was a fully developed short story. Okay. The Mother. The girl wrote a story. But how much better it would be if you wrote a novel, said her mother. The girl built a dollhouse. But how much better if it were a real house, her mother said. The girl made a small pillow for her father. But wouldn't a quilt be more practical, said her mother. The girl dug a small hole in the garden. But how much better if you dug a large hole, said her mother. The girl dug a large hole and went to sleep in it. But how much better if you slept forever, said her mother. <laughs> you can see why my mother wouldn't like that one. <laughs> now that you've scared the audience. <laughs> well, you know, that, that was a case of letting real, some real gut feelings come, come right out, you know. And I think it helped that it was sort of in a fairy tale or sing-songy form. Because I didn't think about it ahead of time. I just went into it and took it wherever it wanted to go, and that's where it went, so it shocked me, too. Because there are, there are quite a few examples of stories about ambivalent, I mean, mother-child. Can you talk a bit more about your, your interest in that fraught relationship? Oh, well, you know, it's, you can tell. <laughs> it was, you know, family relations are very complex. I, I, I don't know of too many, too many simple ones. You know, we see some families from the outside that seem simple, happy, wholesome, but I doubt if they are completely. So, you know, I had an, an amb I think my mother was another, um, well, she, she did write, and she had a writing career, but she was also a mother and housewife and faculty wife. And um, I think she was struggling with, with you know, they're not paying enough attention to me. She was someone who wanted a lot of attention and kind of stepped a little bit on her children to get attention for herself. At the same time that she was, um, I don't know, she was very lively, good company and a, and a fantastic person, you know, a very stimulating person, always starting new projects and thinking of new things to do and you know, learning calligraphy or making this or... You know, aside from writing, she would just she loved making all sorts of things. So she was she was fun and stimulating, but she was also difficult. So I, I think it is valuable to to write these things out in some form or other. And in in fact, she taught a a course. See, she was quite remarkable. At the age of I don't know what, in her eighties, she became she was a Bunting Fellow at Harvard at Radcliffe, rather, and, um, and then went on to teach a, a, a workshop until she, just months before she died at the age of nearly 101, she was still teaching a workshop in her living room. And the workshop was for, um, it, it turned out mainly, well, all women. It wasn't listed in the catalog as women only, but, you know, the few men who signed up for it were quickly 
intimidated by the number of women and would leave. So the women would, um, would keep journals and of daily events in their lives or difficult events or happy events. And she would uh, work with them to, to turn them into not finished short stories, but just to improve the writing in them so that they became um, pieces of writing that other people could read and get something out of. It was a very popular class, and she worked very hard on it, very conscientiously. What did she make of all your stories that didn't that portrayed this? Uh... Oh, she she you know the, some of them I didn't show to her. I mean, you know, any that would really, I mean, that, that bothered her. There were others that would have bothered her that I, I just didn't, didn't publish. And one, I, one that would have bothered her, I published in a very small magazine called A Little Magazine, thinking it would be well hidden. She would never see it. But then Harper's, someone from Harper's found it and, and wanted to put it in their readings section. And she might have seen it there. Now, then I had a moral dilemma, and um, I didn't do the right thing. I didn't withhold it from Harper's. I let Harper's publish it, which was morally wrong, or not not morally wrong, but just risking hurting her. But but my older son, I talked to him about this dilemma, and he 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 had this very smart suggestion of changing just a few words toward the end of the story that made it not so hurtful, or not hurtful at all. So she could read it differently. And it didn't hurt the story, but it would, it would be something she could read and not mind too much. And um, I thought, how smart. And then if I put it in a book, I mean, I can not put it in a book till she's gone, and then I can restore it to what it was. <laughs> and so I did that, and she just never happened to see it, so... I was glad. I don't like to publish things that are going to hurt people, even if they've hurt me. And that's another dilemma, you know, if your mother's hurt you over and over. But then when she gets old, you just don't want to hurt her. Why not? You know, don't you have a right to hurt her back? Not, no. You know, it feels if you do, so you don't. Lydia Davis, you're also a translator and recently published a new version of the first volume of... Uh, Proust's In Search of Lost Time, Swan's Way. The previous standard translation was Scott Moncrief, although it has also been subsequently modified. What did you want to do that would be different? It's a funny situation because people who first um, read Proust in Scott Moncrief's translation uh, and loved it, you know, loved Proust, are very wedded to that version. And um, to them, that really is Proust. But the thing is, it's not really the way Proust wrote. He wrote much more plainly, for one thing. Uh, Scott Moncrief has, has embellished and, and heightened the language. I can't probably think of great examples right now, but for L'Entrée des Enfers... So the entrance to the underworld, he said the jaws of hell. Now, so he introduces the metaphor jaws of hell. And Proust, he, he did that throughout, you know, um, if Proust said strange, this is another actual thing, he would, he would say strange and haunting. Now he had a reason to do it, he would, for the, for the sort of flow of the sentence. But he did it all the way through, so he really heightened it at every point. And, um, and that was one thing that I felt I could do very differently, you know, without writing awkward or unhappy English. I could really wrote, write what Proust wrote, and much more closely. And um, I guess that was the main, I felt there really was a need for a new version, because that Scott Moncrief had been uh, revised twice, but things like The Jaws of Hell and Strange and Haunting had not been taken out, had not been changed. And I think, I mean, just in reading your preface, it was surprising to read that, that Proust valued concision and uh, 
and categorically rejected sentences that were artificial or overly abstract or that, that's such a nice thing to think about that that he he wrote that in a letter to Jean Cocteau or something that that he didn't he didn't like a sentence that kind of groped and arrived at a thought by degrees and so he felt that his own writing obviously or that's what he aimed for was concision so even if a sentence was two pages long or three pages long it did not have any words in it that did not need to be there and i have a lot of respect for that and especially i have a you know he was not writing these long sentences just as tour de forces or you know look what I can do, what, you know, or, or experiments. Or He really felt that the sentence could not stop till the thought had been completely captured. And even if that meant, you know, going off on what seemed like digressions and coming back again over and over, the one sentence had to be intact. It was very important to him. How has Proust influenced your own writing? Well, I did it very late in my own writing career. I mean, I only did it a few years ago. Although I read Du Côté de Chez Swann in French, say in the 70s, so it's not impossible that something lodged in my head. I really think what you read and that you're impressed by lodges somewhere, even if it doesn't show up right away. It, it only influenced it in a reverse way, in the sense that while I was doing the Proust, I had to give all day every day to that. And I really couldn't write in any serious way, or shall I not say serious, but any extended way. So I thought, well, I would like to see how short a piece I could write and still have it have some gravity or some impact or some uh, some resonance. And so it was while I was writing the Proust that I developed these very, very short pieces that are only a sentence and then one or two lines. And a short sentence. Uh, what? Not, not a Proustian sentence, right. a oh, short yes. sentence. I, guess, yeah, I should be careful to say that. Not a three-page <laughs> sentence, but a two-line sentence or a one-line sentence. So I think that was a kind of a relief from the, from the adventure of putting together the extended sentences of Proust. And now you're translating Flaubert's Madame Bovary. Yes. Which is one of the, I think, most translated French novels in the English language. I know this. This is a problem. It's the opposite. Of, <laughs> it's the opposite of Proust. I mean, from Eleanor Marx to Francis Stiegmuller. That's right. Uh, Why did you want beyond. to take it on? Well, at first I didn't, for that very reason. They they asked me if I would do it fairly soon after I had finished the Proust, and there was such such good reason to do the Proust to my mind. Um, I looked sort of quickly at some of the translations of the Madame Bovary and thought, well, the earlier ones didn't have his italics, but the later ones do, you know, and um, there are so many, and I've just finished the Proust, and so I said I didn't want to do it, and that was that. But then they, they asked me again last summer, and this was a few years later, a couple years later or so, and by then, I, I missed translating. I had not been translating and didn't think I had to. You know, I just thought, well, enough is enough. You know, you don't translate Proust and then think you have to go on. You know, that's like the high point, I thought. But I missed it very much. So I took a harder look at the translations and the most recent ones and the ones that are supposed to be the best. A lot of people love the Francis Stiegmuller, but even though that reads very well as a novel in English, he took great liberties. And, um, for example, after Charles's first wife dies, uh, he's sitting there thinking about her. And um, I think the chapter ends with him saying she had loved him too. Something like, after all, she had loved him. And Stiegmuller put right before that, which Flaubert didn't have at all, he had just the two-word sentence, poor thing, poor thing. After all, she had loved him. Well, well Flaubert didn't write that, you know. So, and that happened throughout. There, there were content, really? yeah. Con Talk about Le just where, where did he find it? Well, he was recreating it as a living novel in English, and that's a whole approach that is one approach. I don't agree with it, but read the novel 
understand it, then recreate it, even if it means changing the order of the sentences. Or so I, you know, I found in each in each translation that I looked at, there were things that that I thought did stray too far, that you could have a closer translation. I wonder if you could read a piece from your collection, Samuel Johnson is Indignant. It's called Happiest Moment. Okay. Happiest Moment. If you ask her what is a favorite story she has written, she will hesitate for a long time and then say, it may be this story that she read in a book once. An English language teacher in China asked his Chinese student to say, what was the happiest moment in his life? The student hesitated for a long time. At last, he smiled with embarrassment and said that his wife had once gone to Beijing and eaten duck there, and she often told him about it, and he would have to say the happiest moment of his life was her trip and the eating of the duck. Lydia Davis with her story, Happiest Moment. Apparently, it's based on a, a true story from a memoir by the American Mark Saltzman. What drew you to it? Oh, I just loved it. It's the kind of story you can think about over and over. His book, Iron and Silk, it's a wonderful book, and it's just story after story of his work with the Chinese students and um, his life there. And it just seemed uh, an entirely new idea to me, and I kept applying it to other things in my life after I read it, that your your happiest experience or your most difficult could be someone else's experience. <laughs> and not, not even them telling you about it, but just that you could, somehow you could be suddenly living someone else's life. It's great fun to have a chance to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Lydia Davis at the Blue Metropolis Festival in Montreal in 2007. Varieties of Disturbance, the collected stories of Lydia Davis, as well as her books of essays, are available in paperback. Her new book is called Our Strangers. Today's show was produced by Mary Stinson. Katie Swales is also producer. The associate producer is Melissa Gismondi, with thanks to Olivia Pascarelli. Technical operations by Emily Caravaggio. The senior producer of Writers and Company is Sandra Rabinovich. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, from New York, the remarkable Lori Siegel, author of Other People's Houses and Shakespeare's Kitchen. At 95, she has a new book, Ladies' Lunch and Other Stories. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.